Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hung Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast, still more likely the home of a sedition. My name is Julius Bülow. Today, I'm presenting you the conversation about Donald Trump's much-anticipated Buy American Executive Order, aimed at shoring up domestic manufacture of essential medicines, medical countermeasures and critical inputs, and decreasing dependency on non-domestic sources. Phil Katz invited Joyce Storm, Mike Heil, David Horowitz and Kelly Ann Shore on a Zoom call to discuss their observations since the announcement of the executive order, what they expect and what actions companies are or should be taking or considering. As always, I'm trying to keep the intro short as we're going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. It's, um, it's a couple minutes past the top of the hour. Um, and so we're going to get started, mindful of everyone's time. Um, again, I'm Phil Katz. I'm the head of the pharma biotech regulatory practice here at Hogan Lovells. Um, and it's a group that has some 30 plus lawyers that focus on helping pharma and biotech companies um, op- operate, successfully conduct their businesses in this highly regulated environment. Um, and we do so around the globe. Um, uh, today, we're going to be having a panel discussion uh, about the recently issued executive order from President Trump, which is intended to strengthen the U.S. domestic manufacturing capacity for drugs, medical devices, and certain components. Um, as you saw from this invitation, we've titled this Buy American, How Will This Month's Executive Order Impact Drug and Device Companies, and What Should You Do About It? Uh, in line with that, we'll be spending the next 30 or 45 minutes, depending on how questions go, exploring that subject from several perspectives. Uh, we'll be looking at the U.S. federal government procurement. We'll be looking at our international trade commitments and the potential impact on foreign government procurement. And we'll be looking at FDA regulation of drugs and devices. Uh, in general, Um, We'll quickly summarize the provisions of the executive order and then talk about the possible implications of those provisions with a focus on what you might be be thinking about in in anticipation of what may be coming down the pipe. Um, Before we get into this in earnest, though, uh, allow me to hit a couple of housekeeping items. Um, First, you'll notice that unlike on most Zoom calls, you don't have the ability to see the other participants in gallery view. You'll only be able to see the Hogan Lovells panelists and any slides that are up, like like right now. Number two, the webinar is being recorded. Um, You gave your permission uh, to be recorded as part of signing in, Um, but we'll be sending out a link to the recording to all of the participants after the meeting is over. Um, uh, Thirdly, we really want to make sure that we talk about the things that are of interest to you, the things that are concerning you, or the questions that are, are, um, I don't know, keeping you up at night. Let's hope not. Um, To that end, uh, we really look forward to answering questions that you have. So please use, there's a Q&A widget at the bottom of your screen. Please use that to send questions to us. I know some of you did um, uh, in your your signing up for this and we have those questions in the queue. But if other questions occur during the course of this, please feel free to use the Q&A chat function uh, and post your questions. Um, They will be seen by uh, the Hogan Lovells team. Uh, They will not be seen by the other participants. Um, And even with regard to the Hogan Lovells team, uh, there's an opportunity for you to make your question anonymous if you don't want us to know that it's coming from you. 
Um, joining me today um, are four of my colleagues, and I'm happy to say friends from uh, the global regulatory and IPMT practice um, at Hogan Levels. And each of them is resident in our DC office when we're uh, not uh, at home, but actually returning to the office, we hope. Um, each of them is also a senior practitioner with years of experience working with the relevant laws. Um, but more importantly, I'd say, um, they also each have a well-honed sense of the context in which this executive order exists. And, and by that, um, I mean they have an understanding of how the affected businesses operate. Um, they have an understanding of the business imperatives. And they also understand the real world challenges of governing, of trying to take a policy and actually implement it in the real world. Um, they're also very well aware of the stakes for all of the involved parties. Um, so let me tell you a little bit more about them in alphabetical order. Uh, Mike Heil uh, is, a, is a partner in our medical devices practice. Um, he specializes in post-approval compliance for our device uh, clients around the globe, including FDA enforcement in actions. And he also does a lot of work with regard to supply chain issues. He's been one of our leaders in helping device clients navigate the evolving field of COVID policies at FDA and bringing those products to market. Uh, and he's been at the firm almost 20 years now, having come, I thought I'd turn that off, having come to the firm after a, a career on Capitol Hill as a lobbyist. Uh, David Horowitz is a partner in uh, my pharma biotech practice. And he came to us just a few years ago after a 25 year career quite distinguished at FDA and at HHS. Uh, he was with FDA's Office of Chief Counsel, uh, but he also held senior positions within the agency's operating components, including as head of the compliance office in the Center for Drugs. Um, at HHS, which was the capstone of his government career, um, David was the Deputy General Counsel with responsibility over, among other agencies, FDA. Um, and here at Hogan Lovells, he's been advising clients on compliance and enforcement issues uh, strategies for FDA interaction and policy issues, including uh, of particular relevance here on, on imports. Kellyanne Shaw, the newest member of the team, came to us just a few months ago. Um, she's a partner in our international trade and our government relations practices. He came, she came to us after about uh, a decade uh, of government service, including in the office of the U.S. Trade Rep, uh, including as trade counsel to the House Ways and Means Committee. And most recently, she was deputy assistant to the president for international economic affairs and deputy director of the National Economic Council in this current administration. Um, while at the White House, um, Kellyanne was the lead negotiator for the US at the G7, G20, and APEC, and a senior advisor to the president on trade, investment, and supply chain issues, including by American policies. Um, and, and lastly, let me introduce my, my friend and partner, Joyce Sturm, who's a head of our life sciences government contracts practice. Um, for more than 20 years, Joy has been advising pharma, biotech, and medical device companies on U.S. federal procurement issues. Uh, she knows the federal health and medical procurement programs inside and out, including those administered by the Department of Defense, Department of Veteran Affairs, and Health and Human Services. Uh, of particular relevance to today's discussion, 
Joy has extensive experience with the strategic national stockpile, uh, with BARDA, and with Buy American and Country of Origin programs. Um, allow me to spend just a couple of minutes summarizing the key provisions of this order, um, and then we can get into more focused discussion. The expressed goal of the order, the purpose, is to strengthen U.S. domestic manufacturing capacity with regard to drugs and devices and components thereof. Um, these goals are achieved by three main things. Number one, FDA and the Department of Defense are required to identify a list of essential drugs, devices, and components. Number two, um, there are substantial U.S. government contract preferences for products that of on that list that are made in the U.S. Uh, and it and we also remove the reciprocal treatment for products from countries that have executed international trade agreements with the U.S. Um, there are some significant exceptions to that, and we'll talk about them in a short bit. Uh, the third prong is that the order directs FDA to take steps to expedite the development and review and approval process of U.S. manufactured products. Of course, this is uh, the, the general concepts may sound quite simple and straightforward, but we all know that they're not, and actual implementation will be difficult at best. Um, there are many in, important questions about how it's actually going to work, and that's what today's discussion is intended to focus on. We'll be touching on a range of questions, including how will the order be interpreted, how will it be applied, and by whom? What do we think it'll mean to domestic companies? What about to foreign companies? Um, what will it require of the involved federal agencies? What are they going to have to do? And how are our trading relationships going to be affected? So with that general beginning, um, what I'd like to do is start by talking with the panelists, um, and um, we'll be engaging in a discussion that I hope you find interesting. And as I said before, please feel free to send questions in. Um, the format um, doesn't make it easy for us to be able to do that, uh, to answer questions sort of on the fly in the middle of the discussion. Uh, I'm, I must confess, I'm old enough that that um, getting used to Zoom and all of this is not is not first nature for me. But we will be um, answering questions probably at the end of the program because it's easier than trying to um, integrate them now. So, so let me start though, um, because at the heart of this Buy American plan, um, it's for federal agencies that buy drugs and medical devices. Um, I'd like to start, Joy Sturm, with you. I'd like to start with a question. Sure. With regard to the procurement process, um, what are the two or three most important things that you take away from this executive order? Thanks, Phil. Uh, as you noted, broadly speaking, this executive order is meant to promote the manufacture of essential drugs and medical devices in the United States by favoring American products and government contracts. And you're right, there's a lot to cover. These are what I see as the key points. First, it's far from clear what the impact of the order will be. There are many considerations at play here. For starters, the order applies only to federal contracts, which for many drug and device companies are really a small percentage of their business. They're more uh, focused on the commercial space. Um, so it's not clear how much of an, an incentive the order will provide for companies to develop U.S. manufacturing capabilities to chase down that federal business. And 
also the standard for determining whether a product is made in the U.S. and is domestic is quite strict under this order. It requires that all critical inputs, meaning components, be made in the U.S. and that manufacture take place here too. This standard, incidentally, sets a much higher bar than the origin standards that are set under current law. And we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later in more detail. So establishing U.S. manufacture that will result in products being treated as domestic under the order will involve onshoring for all key components and not just final processing. That's a really heavy lift. On the flip side, companies may want to seize this opportunity and go for government funding um, to finance building up U.S. manufacturing capacity. And the order specifically directs the government to leverage the extraordinary procurement tool, um, which, uh, which we call the Defense Production Act, and that's been invoked for this current pandemic. Um, as a funding mechanism to meet the executive order's goals. So we'll see whether that is an incentive that really pushes manufacture toward the U.S. Another factor here that's really important is that there are a host of exceptions to the order that allow procuring agencies to basically sidestep the orders by American directives. And my sense is that these exceptions likely will minimize the order's impact. Um, another key point here is that we have to recognize the practical impact of the order on government procurement of products that are not made in the U.S. So, first of all, implementation of the order, in our view, likely will upend the reciprocal treatment given to, to products coming from countries with which we have international trade or defense agreements. These are referred to as designated countries or qualifying countries under the Defense Department framework. Um, these countries' products currently are treated with parity to U.S. products. They're treated as if they were made in the U.S. for government contract purposes. And barriers to procurement of these products are waived. The executive order would change that and would place steep premiums on the prices of these products meaning they would be less competitive in government procurement. This may have broader consequences even beyond U.S. government procurement in terms of actions taken by foreign governments in their drug and device procurements over time. And finally, the order may actually lead to some unintended consequences in terms of procurement of non-U.S. goods because it may open the door for U.S. procurement of drugs and devices from countries like China and India, where drugs and devices are manufactured in um, very large amounts, as we know, those countries under current law generally are not eligible, um, products of those countries are not eligible for purchase under federal procurements under current law, but in our reading, under this order, products of those countries would not be blocked further. So those are the key points still. Thank you. Thank you. you one of the things you mentioned was um, that there are significant exceptions to the uh, Buy American requirement. Can you, can you just briefly elaborate on what they are? Sure. 
So there are a number of broad exceptions. So an agency wouldn't be required to buy American under the order, first of all, if doing so would be contrary to the public interest. So that's quite a broad exception. Um, secondly, if it would cause the cost of any given procurement to increase by 25% or more for certain procurements. Um, also, if U.S. product isn't available in sufficient quantities or isn't of satisfactory quality, and also an exception applies if a public health or national emergency makes it necessary to buy foreign-made products. And it's ironic, Phil, because the COVID-19 pandemic that in many ways led to this executive order would provide an exemption from the order. So my sense is that these broad exceptions reflect the recognition that many, in fact, probably most of the products that would be deemed essential under this order currently wouldn't meet the order's strict U.S. origin standards. And it'll take years before the U.S. industrial base for essential drugs and devices can be meaningfully expanded. So these exceptions give agencies flexibility to do what they need to do to meet public health needs. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you. Um, Kellyanne, uh, Joy said that the order could upend our reciprocal treatment that's currently applied to foreign products and that foreign governments extend to U.S. products. Um, tell me a little bit more about what that is and how it works, would you? Sure. Thanks, Phil. Uh, you know, as Joy mentioned, one of the most significant impacts of this executive order is on our trading relationships and what that means for um, access not only to domestic procurement markets, but also to international procurement markets for U.S. produced goods. Uh, so, you know, normally under our trade agreements, um, there are reciprocal obligations negotiated. You know, having domestic preferences for federal procurement is not novel. It's not specific specific to the U.S. either. Most governments adopt the same policies. In the U.S., it's called Buy American. That's the law of the land. Other countries have similar laws. Uh, but over the last few decades, we have negotiated these reciprocal commitments where we give certain trading and defense partners, known as designated countries, access to our market in exchange for access to theirs. So under this executive order, the U.S. trade representative is required to notify our trading partners under those uh, bilateral trade agreements, as well as the WTO government procurement agreement, that we're going to be limiting our market access. We're modifying those commitments. Um, now, that means our, our trading partners have the opportunity to change their markets in response. So as this process plays out, the impact on international trade is going to be really significant. Uh, okay, so, so really significant is, is sort of a, a polite political euphemism. Um, what what do you mean? Retaliation, other things? What do you, what do you think um, is the likely um, impact, or or what would play out from this? Sure. No, I think retaliation is certainly um, first up in terms of what we would expect to see. Uh, you know, under our trade agreements, there is a, a process laid out for modifying our commitments, which is what. 
the U.S. Trade Representative will have to do. And there is a series of months in which countries will have to consult and negotiate. So we say we are going to limit our access for a number of products that FDA deems as essential and medically necessary. Um, there will be a potentially five-month period in which countries will have to negotiate what that means. Um, you know, ultimately, at the end of that, if there's not agreement um, in terms of uh, thinking that what we're doing uh, doesn't substantially change the trading relationship, uh, we will expect to see that countries will limit their own uh, federal procurement markets. So effectively, not only do companies have to worry about what this order means here at home, but they're also going to have to be concerned about how other foreign countries are going to respond and what that means for their U.S. produced products in foreign markets. And so there, I think we're going to see increased trade tensions as a result of this with some key trading partners. Um, um, but this will all play out over the next, uh, you know, four to nine months. Uh, you know, one of the things that I that I think of when I hear you say that, talking about the potential implications in the foreign markets, is you know, Joy um, pointed out that uh, to some degree the Im the impact of of this executive order may be uh, less than overwhelming if you look at the percentage of most drug company sales that are in federal procurement. Um, but it, but it seems to me one of the things we have to think about is in other countries, which you're telling me, Kellyanne, may be imposing the same thing back to us under the well-known trade policy uh, axiom of what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, that may be happening in, in markets where the government procurement is a much larger percentage of the market where, where the health care is provided by the government. So there may be significant implications, it would seem to me in foreign markets. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is going to impact a lot of U.S. production as well who sell into foreign markets, particularly for countries that play a greater role in the health systems for these uh, medical devices and pharmaceutical goods. And, uh, okay. Okay. Um, so, so look, all of this is going to happen um, with regard to a certain set of pharma and device products. Um, that are going to be put on a list of essential products by the FDA. Um, David Horowitz, you've spent um, years working within FDA and HHS in terms of implementing policies like this. Um, what are your thoughts on the process of how this is going to play out and what impact do you think that might have on the substantive result? Thanks, Phil. So I think probably the most significant role for FDA under the executive order is going to be to establish the list of products that are medically necessary and also fall into one of three identified categories, essential medicines, medical countermeasures, and critical inputs. Now, the list is due 90 days after the executive order issued. And interestingly, that's the day after election day. And I had a couple of thoughts about how the process will play out with regard to the potential uh, political interplay of the various interests and how that will relate to um, the items that appear on the list of medically necessary products. So first, um, one of the things that's really unusual about this provision is that FDA 
um, in coming up with this list of medically necessary products has to consult with White House officials, including specifically the assistant to the president for economic policy and the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing, as, as well as OMB. Okay, and let me just wait. A minute, let me interrupt yeah. you just just for a second. All right, Kellyanne, who are those people? Because not all of us, including me, know them by their titles. Uh, sure. So the the assistant to the president for economic policy is uh, Director Larry Kudlow of the National Economic Council. Um, the assistant to the president for manufacturing and trade policy is Peter Navarro, and then OMB is um, currently Russ Bott. Thanks. Sorry, David. Go ahead. Thank you. And I'm not aware of another executive order that requires FDA to make a decision that most people would think of as a scientific and medical decision, i.e. what drugs are medically necessary, that requires consultation with such high level and powerful White House uh, officials. Um, so this could result in some conflict between FDA and the White House. Um, Understandably, the officials identified here, they have a focus on trade and economic and industrial policy issues. And FDA is naturally gonna be focused more on the public health aspects and, and specifically the, the medical necessity itself, which is a term that FDA is very comfortable with. Um, so that, that could lead to some conflict. And the main term here, um, it is essential medicine, the, 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 and that term is not actually defined. Um, so I think it gives FDA on the one hand a lot of flexibility, but on the other hand, not that much to grab onto um, other than medical necessity. Um, and that term essential medicines is, is not even really a term FDA is familiar with. Um, it's not a term. FDA usually refers to drugs, not medicines. Medicines is more of a term that international regulators use. But specifically, it's not an accident, I think, that that term is used here. It harkens back to the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. And what's noteworthy about that is that's developed not just by scientists, but also with an eye toward cost effectiveness. And, and that's not something that FDA is generally familiar with or, or comfortable with. Um, so in this instance, I think because FDA will be interacting with the White House officials and because of the, the, the lack of familiarity with cost effectiveness in medicines, I think FDA will naturally fall back on what are the medically necessary products here? And I think they'll be um, open to input from the, the White House on that. Um, and they're likely to, I think, um, folks who are focused on trade likely to want a larger number of items on this list so that the executive order has, has greater impact. Um, but lastly, I, I, I don't think FDA will incorporate the cost effectiveness considerations because it, it's not something that, that FDA is entirely familiar with um, and it's outside their comfort zone. Comfort zone. So, th so those are my thoughts. That, that's that's um, helpful. Thank you. I, I, um, so I, I think what I hear you saying is the net net of this is that the list 
will likely be bigger rather than smaller. Because if you're trying to um, uh, shore up the US industrial base, you want this policy to apply broadly. If you're trying to um, take a stand, perhaps in the trade world, you want it to apply broadly. Uh, if you're FDA, you're going to want to think broadly about what's medically necessary in these uh, in these con and, and 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 FDA is not necessarily going to have a, a dog in the fight with the with the other um, components of the administration. So we're going to end up with a bigger list rather than a smaller list. Is that fair? Yeah, that's that's my instinct. Okay, so if we have a bigger list rather than a smaller list, does that translate to this executive order having a bigger impact rather than a smaller impact? Well, not necessarily. I, I, um, you know, obviously, if the list had nothing on it, then that would be the the end of the the discussion. But even with um, a relatively big list, because you know FDA is going to put a lot of find that a lot of things are medically necessary. There are still so many exceptions that Joy talked about um, from the Buy American requirement that will very much impact the, the impact. So if the impact is mostly limited to procurement, uh, that's a limited uh, marketplace uh, for, for the government. Um, sales to the government is a limited marketplace for pharmaceuticals. And so I, I think it'll still be limited without regard to the size of the list. Okay, and, and you said if it's if we're talking about government procurement, but but of course another aspect of this is is the direction for FDA to expedite review and approval, and I guess before that development of the products on the list. Do, do you see that having um, significant impact? I I don't. Um, the executive order is limited to what is lawful and and appropriate, and to a large degree, I think FDA is already going to do what's lawful and, and appropriate and actually already has in some areas. But you know, specifically, I think folks are very interested in this, this directive to accelerate the review of domestically produced products. And um, it's, it's not entirely clear to me that FDA has the statutory authority to accelerate its review based on domestic versus foreign. Congress by statute has defined several programs to accelerate review and they're based on public health issues, not trade um, and industrial policy factors. So there, okay. it may require some statutory change here for some of the intent of this executive order to be realized. Okay, but let me let me follow up on that thread and, and ask you, Mike, um, so, so what do you think about that? You've spent a lot of time with folks um, in terms of how their products are manufactured, and you're usually coming in after the product has been um, cleared or approved, but you're obviously not unmindful of, of the other aspects of, of the FDA process. Um, tell us a little bit more about what David was just referring to in terms of what the order requires and how it requires it and what you think it, it, that says about the practical uh, implications of the order in that regard. Sure, and, and I'll start by saying calling them requirements, I would say is is a little bit squishy there. Like other parts of the executive order, there are a number of qualifiers that modify these requirements. So it makes it a little bit hard to guess, let alone you know, how the order is going to be implemented. Uh, FDA is directed, as, as David mentioned, to accelerate the, the clearance or approval of U.S. made products as appropriate. So it's unclear what that really means or, or how that will, will be played out. 
uh, it may depend on the specific circumstances, and, and this could fluctuate over time, as, as we've seen with, with the current pandemic. Uh, it, this could be a situation where uh, Joy talked about the, the various exceptions. This could be uh, something where the exceptions are going to swallow the rule, for example. The, they're gonna, the requirements are going to change. The need for and the demand for, for products is really going to change. Uh, and so what's in the public interest is going to change right along with it. Uh, FDA is, as David noted as well, is, is supposed to take these actions consistent with applicable law. I mean, FDA does already have fairly broad authority to expedite the development review of, of products, and they do this based on a number of criteria that are, that are health-related. Uh, the order really doesn't create new types of assistance or, or expedition, and, and simply saying that uh, existing programs should be applied to U.S. manufactured products doesn't automatically pull U.S. products in, into various programs. Uh, for example, expediting reviews as, as part of FDA's regulatory reform initiatives. Uh, so it makes it really hard to predict what effect the order is really going to have in, in that regard. Uh, I do think that in practice, the impact's likely going to depend on, on the scope of, of uh, products that FDA puts on the list. The, the broader the list, it, it, it could have a, a larger impact. The smaller the list, the smaller impact. Uh, for that, I, I do see FDA you know, perhaps taking action on a case-by-case -case or file-by-file -file basis, uh, but I, there, there are practical limits to, to what can really be accomplished. Uh, and, 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 and frankly, vetting it out, there is a potential for unintended consequences. A number of groups at FDA, uh, review groups, are already under uh, extreme pressure and, and burden to meet timing deadlines under, under MADUFMA. Uh, there are finite resources, which means prioritizing products based on where they're made could really undermine efforts of prioritizing products based on the effect that they have or the need that they have in the marketplace, such as innovative products or products that are really needed to, to help safety and effectiveness. Uh, so it's, it's, it's imperative that you know, whatever program is put in place or expedition is put in place, it doesn't compromise FDA's current review standards, even when responding to a public health crisis. So I, I really I don't see FDA taking any sort of action that's going to change their focus on safety and effectiveness. I, I really don't think that they're going to change standards uh, for safety and effectiveness based on where a product is made. I think their mandate is clear. Uh, to ensure that safe and effective products are, are the ones that get out into the, into the marketplace. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as I mentioned before, we could see things occur on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I think that's what we've seen recently in the current pandemic, in, in particular uh, with, with respirators that are, are made in China. When, when FDA first came out with their emergency use authorizations for respirators, uh, they, they excluded China. And, and then as the number of cases increased uh, and, and the demand came larger uh, for the K, for N95s and KN95s, a new EUA or emergency use authorization was issued specific for respirators made in China. There was also a, a grant of enforcement discretion, which allowed respirators to come in. Uh, I think after a little bit of time, some of these things were tested by FDA and NIOSH and found that to not meet certain standards and, and immediately FDA revoked a number of the EUAs and took companies off the list. Uh, so I do think that there is the opportunity for FDA to not necessarily say play favorites, but 
to to take action uh, on a case by case or as needed basis, uh, but really it's going to be more based on quality uh, than than location. Okay, you know it 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 made me think um, when when you were talking about what does it mean to be a, as appropriate and and using these um, these um, the the mass the N95s as as a, as an example. You know, FDA in a number of instances under emergency use authorization um, uh, granted EUA status to products that they then um, backed off from. And, and some of that has to do with the agency sort of finding its sea legs as to what is appropriate. You know, what should be, uh, you, you know, we all know that the standard for bringing a product to market under an EUA is much lighter than what you require for an approval. Um, and yet that still leaves a lot to, to be um, determined. And I, th I think we saw FDA sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say struggling, but finding its way as to what appropriate standards are. And, and, and these masks may be a part of that, or hydroxychloroquine might be part of that. I mean, there, there are a variety of, um, of things. So, so that's, that's, um, that's interesting. I, I also know that the order with regard to FDA stuff talks about um, foreign inspections a bit. Can you just briefly um, give us a little bit of what it says and what you think it means. Sure. The, the the executive order does require negotiation with foreign authorities to increase the number of FDA inspections overseas uh, and, and to increase the number of, of these inspections that are unannounced. I, I, I think it's interesting because this is broad discretion that FDA already has. And, and if you look at just on the device side, if you look at the number of inspections that have been conducted since fiscal year 2011, for example, through 2018, the, the numbers went up significantly, almost a 100% increase in the number of inspections. So there, there is already a broad authority that FDA has in, in, in their ability to increase or decrease the number of foreign inspections. What is interesting is the discussion about having unannounced inspections overseas. Uh, as, as, as many folks may understand that there is negotiation that takes place to schedule these. And so uh, foreign manufacturers do have the benefit of knowing when FDA is going to be showing up uh, and preparing for that inspection. If that goes away, we could see perhaps an increase in 43s or warning letters. But most importantly, uh, if there is an increase in import alerts due to a bad inspection or due to marketing claims or, or that aren't cleared or approved. So if we do see a number of import alerts increase, that could benefit U.S. production or U.S. producers at the expense of a foreign manufacturer. I, I'm not really sure that the impact there would, would be too significant, but it is something just to watch. Um, the last thing that I'll say on this is it's also interesting in that FDA has been pushing for harmonization with international standards and, and actually is a participant in the medical device single audit program or MDSAT program under which inspections for participants are performed by third parties uh, that are qualified under the program and they're also uh, announced uh, before before they show up. So uh, FDA is really not the party who's performing those inspections. Uh, so it, it really may lead to if, if FDA were to take any sort of action in this in this regard, they'd have to probably renegotiate their uh, their agreements with the other entities involved with MDSAP. Okay, okay, thank you, um, uh, Kellyanne. Um, you heard um, M Mike just talking about how some things would have to change 
if this were going to be implemented. You heard David talk about how there might be actual legislative change, statutory change that would be necessary to implement some of the provisions. And you talked earlier about the need to negotiate through our trade agreements, um, removing the reciprocal treatment uh, and the time that would take. That, that, those are all things that go beyond merely issuing an executive order. Can, can you talk a little bit about what, what the implications are of the fact that this is, uh, and I, I don't mean to, to diminish it, but merely an executive order, not a statute, not a regulation, not even an agency guidance. What, what are the implications of that in terms of practical application? Sure. You know, I think it's a great question, particularly since this was issued so close to an election. You know, executive orders have a lot of benefits, but they have drawbacks in that just as easily as they are issued, they can be revoked by either the current president or if there's a change in administration, um, potentially the next one. Um, but I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One, um, it's impossible to know what's going to happen between now and November. Um, two, even if there is a change in the administration, you know, certainly supply chain chain issues, uh, particularly when it comes to pharmaceutical products and medical devices, are at the top of minds of lawmakers and policymakers alike. And it is unavoidable that something in this space will be done. Um, and then three, I guess the one thing we do know is that between now and the end of the year, this executive order it will be implemented. I mean, agencies are taking steps to do that. So for those reasons, I think it's important that companies who think that they may be impacted by this take it seriously. Um, that's not to say it's written in stone, um, but you know, for now, all we know is that it is being implemented. And, and written in stone is not a reference to Roger Stone, right? I just want <laughs> to certainly not. Sure. Okay, um, you, you know, Joy. Um, one of the questions that I, I think a lot of folks have is, how is this actually going to? Okay, let's assume the list issues. Let's assume that there's there's um, there's now procurement to be had. Um, it, is this going to have effect on sort of all drugs or maybe only a subset of drugs, depending on how the contracts are done? Um, can, can you talk about that first and, and then maybe talk a little bit about if there, if there are particular types of contracts that this relates to and, and maybe therefore different types of drugs that are affected? Um, how do you think the agencies are going to go about making uh, determinations as to whether an exception applies? Sure. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I think if this framework and these new Buy American rules are implemented, uh, I, I think it'll affect different types of products in different ways. So, for example, for generic drugs and a products, or medical devices and diagnostics and that sort of thing, um, those are often competed in what we call competitive awards, right? Requirements contracts, where there might be multiple products within a class, and then the government uh, decides to run a competition, and it, it just decides to buy one of the products that's offered, or maybe more than one. In that case, if this EO goes into effect, um, in competitions where you've got foreign product competing against U.S. product, um, that foreign product is going to be subject to evaluation preferences, which means that 
the price of the foreign product is going to be jacked up by up to 25% or even more in these competitions. And so that's a real impact, right? Um, and that, so we could expect that to happen unless, of course, the, you know, the agency involved applies one of the exceptions. And as we've talked about, the exceptions are many and they are vast. But um, assuming no exception applies, that's what would happen. Um, but for products that are single source innovator drugs, um, I personally would expect less of an impact. And why? It's because those are one of a kind products by definition. And so while the government buys them and, um, you know, it, it tends to buy them on what are known as federal supply schedule contracts, which are technically called competitive contracts, but they really don't involve head-to-head -head competition among companies. Um, and it, it's in the government's interest to just list all products on those contracts. So by and large, I think for innovator drugs, uh, this executive order probably won't have too much impact unless those innovator drugs are not single source anymore and they're multi-source in a class that the government wants to compete. Okay, that, that's um that's that's helpful. Um, um Kellyanne, one of the one of the things that um, we talked about, David mentioned the fact that the list has to come out from FDA the day after the election. Um, uh, we all know that there are deadlines and then there are deadlines. Um, so so do do you think that um, the deadlines in here are going to be met in terms of issuing the uh, issuing the list, but then implementing? the order as it as it's called for? Sure. I, I mean, I do think that administrations tend to adhere to their own executive orders. So, you know, the incentive will be on the administration to implement it according to the timeline. You know, the question is, when do these things go into effect? And, you know, there are a variety of uh, obligations in this executive order. And, you know, I, I talked about one at the top, which is, you know, negotiating with our foreign trading partners and there being, you know, quite a bit of delay in terms of many months to accomplish that. Um, so it could be a while before we actually see these provisions implemented. Um, but that said, I, I do think that at this point, the administration is likely to meet the deadlines. Okay, so so what you're saying is the sort of the deadlines for the things that have to be done with deadlines, you could see them meeting that. FDA will come out with the list. You'll, you know, they'll talk to uh, Peter Navarro, and they'll talk to Larry Kudlow, and they'll come up with the list, and it'll come out, and it'll be maybe even the day before the election. Um, but in terms of how it actually then will roll out, you're suggesting there we're likely to see uh, a, a more extended timeline, and, and not simply because we have to negotiate our way out of the trade agreements that would prohibit us from doing what the order tells us to do, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you look at the executive order, a lot of the deadlines are triggered from that first um, list that comes out from FDA. So everything that the USTR has to do in DOD and HHS, they're, they're triggered from that date. So, you know, there are a few different steps that different agencies and different players will have to follow, and they just have to follow the, the procedures and the various timelines associated with it. Um, but some of these things may take um, several months to actually unfold. Okay. Okay. You know, one of the things, um, Joy, I just want to ask you briefly, because we've gone a little bit past our three-quarter hour, um, so I want to wrap up. But, um, you know, we talk about this as Buy American. Um, 
And, and you talked about how right. the standards for what's American, what's U.S. made, um, are different here than what's applied in other contexts, country of, label, country of origin labeling, tariffs, stuff like that. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what it is by made, what, what is ma meant by sort of U.S. domestic product? Because folks are asking, um, does that mean it's a U.S. company? Does that mean it's a U.S. facility? How, do you, how does that work? How does that parse the New York? Sure, it's a really good question, Phil. So first of all, the, the thrust here is all about the origin of the product and not the domicile or, you know, residence of the company. So um, it, it really has nothing to do with that. And it's all about the origin of the product being offered on government procurements. And so there are rules for, for establishing and assessing origin. And we've got a, many of them in existing law. Um, one is the substantial transformation test that applies under these trade agreements and is prevalent in uh, procurement of drugs and devices. Another is the U.S. manufacture test, which was referenced in a recent important case in this area, the Acetris case that was handed down by the Federal Circuit earlier this year. Um, so those are existing standards. Um, and, and both of those require processing, manufacture, or or extensive processing called transformation, but they don't require that all of the components be made in a particular country to connote origin or denote origin of that country. Um, this executive order for its origin test, when it's assessing what is domestic, it's, it's a really high bar. It requires that all critical inputs, which are the components, have to be produced in the U.S. And the finished product has to be manufactured in the U.S. So it's, it's both things. Very high bar. There are lots of companies that do final manufacture in the U.S. but get their components from elsewhere. Um, it is, at least in my experience, it is not typical to see everything be done in, in the U.S. Um, so um, what is the upshot of all this? For companies that have products that they treat as domestic currently for government procurement, they're going to have to take another look under this executive order, assuming it's implemented and applies in particular procurements. Um, they have to take a look and see whether any products that they consider domestic actually are domestic under the executive order, meaning that the components, the key components are domestic and the manufacturer is in the U.S. Um, and if products aren't, um, if, if upon analysis it becomes clear that the products are foreign, then the issue is, um, you know, taking a look at what the next step is. If the company cares about retaining government business, then there are two options. One is try to, to onshore manufacture and start making U.S. products. And we all know that can take years, but there are opportunities for U.S. funding and financing. The other one, which is less of a heavy lift, is to just model out, financially model, the price point at which um, it, the company believes um, they will win a government contract because they'll undercut the U.S. product anyway, but with a really low price. Hard to do, but there are ways to do it. 
Um, so those are the options, but I hope that answers your question, Phil. Sure, sure. No, thank you. So, so I'm I'm mindful of the fact that we're, we've gone past our, our 45 minutes, um, uh, and I want to be respectful of people's time. I, I guess if I could just briefly summarize, um, I, I think what I'm hearing from from each of you and all of you is that um, this could have some significant impact. Um, there's also a possibility that it won't in terms of practical application, but it could. Mm -hmm. um, and because it could, um, uh, people need to be paying attention and they need to be making some strategic choices that look at their businesses and they look at and look at what their markets are. Um, and also there are many uh, undefined or yet unknown aspects of the order that will have a lot to do with how it gets implemented um, and what the impacts are of how it gets implemented. Um, uh, we've tried to touch on some of that today. Obviously, we can only do it um, to, to a certain degree. Um, I, would, I, would, um, I would like to ask our, our audience, um, A, thank you for tuning in. Um, and thank you for your questions. Um, <clears throat> but I'd, I'd like to suggest you're going to see in a brief moment a slide that has contact info for all of us if you weren't capable of just going on the web and finding it. Um, but if, if we could put up the slide, um, it'll be uh, giving you ways to contact us by email. Please send um, comments. Uh, please send further questions that we didn't get to because um, we'd love to be able to respond to you individually. Um, and, and also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, I hope you can tell that this is an area in which we have a broad practice with cross-cutting capabilities and that we work together with each other. And so to the extent there's more information you want, to the extent there are strategic choices you want to consider, and um, we could be of some assistance, please don't hesitate to ask us for that. But, but again, here you see now the, um, the folks that have been participating in today's call. Um, I thank you for your participation, and I welcome you to email us with comments on how this went, uh, suggestions for doing it even better next time, and for questions that you'd like us to answer, please send all those in. Um, and with that, I will say thank you and wish you a good evening, a good afternoon, and maybe even a good rest of the morning, depending on where you are. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Joy, Kellyanne, David and or Mike, please reach out via hungerlevels.com. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment. We are coming back with our normal schedule in the beginning of September, so please join us again when we're talking The Cure.